Let's go. Well, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Drew Michael. I attend Lithic Bible Church with you all. And uh, I live across the street from Seth McCullough, Annalise, and Daniel. So we're like a neighborhood crew. Um, so it's good to see y'all. It's good to see all the rest of you, too. I just didn't know my neighbors were going to be here. This whole life that we live in has standards of measurement. Start thinking about standards of measurement, right? So you're, some of you are old enough to start thinking about careers. Maybe some of you haven't yet. But who wants to be an engineer? Okay, we got engineers. And what are some of the standards of measurements that engineers would utilize? Millimeters. Going really technical. That's good. Yes. I thought length. But millimeters. Yes. What else? Millimeters do measure length. I know. I just went category. You went specific. Yep. It was great. Fox. Feet. Feet. That's the reason you go to school to be engineers. You can come up with more answers than those, right? So, yeah. So, length, width, height. Space, dimension, volume, depth, there we go. Those are standards of measurement. Okay, cool. So make sure we knew some of those. But you're in school now, right? So what are some of the standards of measurement for school? F. <laughs> that would be one. That would be a poor grade. Don't shoot for that. Yes. D minus. Okay, getting better. Let's go for A. A plus. A plus. Now we're talking about it. you got to get your goals the right direction here. Shoot low, yes. Don't sleep in till 8. That is a rule. <laughs> um, it is a rule about school, and I'm sure Mrs. Bonish would make sure that doesn't happen for you. Yes. F minus. F minus. I don't have to have that. That's bad. Yes. A minus. A minus is there. That's good. The interesting way you run. Okay, so. We got the grade letters, right? A through F. Don't test the latter end. Going further is bad, right? Um, so what about, what does that influence your school grades? Yes. The quality of a job you can get. It could, right? Because if you get a really good, you don't want to say GPA, but if you sum up or average all of your grades from, you know, what, high school, you get a GPA, and that determines scholarships, right? Yes. From school. And which also your GPA determines scholarships. Um, so it all still matters, right? Don't slack off. I know your mom. Don't slap off. Um, right? So I know and you know, so those are standards of measurement that we have, right? What about righteousness? What are standards of measurement of righteousness? Yes. Jesus. Because he is Say it? His faithfulness, but what, how is Jesus a standard of measurement? Because he's God. He's God, and God is, starts with P and is with perfect. Perfect, yes, perfect is the standard of measurement. Jesus is a person, the measurement is perfection. Yes, okay, great, so we have that, right? Um, we look at in Scripture, and we see there's a couple ways that God evaluates or measures us, right? In the Old Testament, he looked at, um, and in the newspaper, really, too, he looks at our heart and our mind. We're going to see that tonight. But I'll, I'll just help you with this idea of how God measures us. In Proverbs 23, 7, he says, As a person thinks within himself, he is. What you think influences who you are, right? So that is how God looks at you. 1 Samuel 16, 7, this is when David was about to be picked out of his family as the next anointed king, Right? You probably remember what the Lord said to Samuel, but he says, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. Those are measurements, but that's not what God looks at. He says, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the inner, 
inner in some versions, or heart. Yes, or heart. The inner man is how it's said sometimes. Your heart, it's talking about the root core of your being that influences all your thoughts, deeds, and actions. That's what God evaluates. So on one hand, you should be really afraid right now because God knows all of your inner secret thoughts, hearts, feelings, emotions, wishes, desires. He knows them all, and he's evaluating you. On the other hand, if you're in Christ, you should be comforted right now because God is faithful and loving and forgiving for all of those things we just went through. But that is how God measures us. And in the context of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ gave us a couple measurements. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the two people groups. There, the scribes and Pharisees. You had it. You just had to say it out loud. I saw it. Right? Scribes and Pharisees. Okay? Right? And unless you surpass that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? For the audience that Jesus was talking to, would that have been a high standard or low standard? High. High standard. The highest that they knew, by the way. Yeah. The highest that they knew. That would have been like, well, I'm out. Those people are somehow have enough money to dedicate themselves to study all the time and do nothing but tell us all the rules. I don't have, I got to work. You know? So they'd be, I'm out. But Jesus corrects even that. In 1 Peter 1, 15 to 6, I'm sorry, I missed one. Verse 48 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, this is a summation of this section where Andy says, Therefore, you are to be, again, starts with P and is perfect. Perfect. Perfect, thank you. Yes, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is. Now we can say it, perfect, right? Because he is our heavenly Father, but he's perfect. That's our standard. Let that wash over you. The standard is perfection. If you want to walk into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be perfect from day zero to day end. Perfect. No one has done that. No one has done that. Our text tonight, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 37. And we'll read that here in a minute. It's going to show us three tests. Three tests that Jesus gives to the people he was speaking to and thus to us today about how God evaluates you. We're going to see how we do. Our text, though, I'll read it for us, is Matthew 5, 27 to 37. He says, You have heard, this is Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, throw it. Uh, throw hand makes you stumble. Where to go? Uh, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, "Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce." But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again. This third test, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you can't can make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. We're going to see these three tests, but for your notes, if you're taking notes and you like to have a theme for what is all this, how does it all come together, here it is. Your desires, your actions, and your words, uh, desires, actions, and words 
all reflect the true nature of your heart. And your heart is what God evaluates your eternal soul by. Your words, your actions, your desires, they all reflect the true nature of your heart. And your heart is what God evaluates for the state of your eternal soul. We're going to see that play out, like I said, across three tests that Jesus is performing tonight. He's testing our hearts through these different ideas, and we're going to see what was taking place. Jesus will reveal what people had heard and thought they understood, and then authoritatively what God's word says. So your first point is your test of your heart, number one, what you desire. This is verses 27 to 30. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery, adultery with her in his heart. We'll pause there. Right? So what had they heard? They had heard that if you commit adultery, you're guilty. You shall not commit adultery. That's what they had heard, solely the external. It's the seventh of the Ten Commandments. And if they looked at that, they said, hey, well, I haven't done that. Thus equals unrighteous. That's what they had heard. That's what they had come to understand. Adultery, right, is when you have a married man and woman and one of them commits sexual activity outside the marriage. That is adultery. They broke God's union, okay? That is adultery. And if you haven't done that, then in their culture in that day, they weren't an adulterer. That's what they understood. Jesus, yes? So, we were talking about the man married woman. I'm actually going to clear that up for you in our second point tonight. So hold on to it. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. Good question. All right. So that's what they had heard. Okay. They were, they took adultery very seriously. In the Old Testament, do you know what the punishment for adultery is? Death. Death. Is that serious? Yes, that is serious. They took it very seriously. Um, But. What they didn't take is where does it go to the heart? And that's where Jesus comes in and corrects them. In verse 28, he says, but I say to you, that word, but I say to you right there in the Greek is, a, is the word ego. But when Jesus says it, it's not the bad version of it, right? Where you're proud, proud, but it's the, I have the authority ego is of all the people you've heard to date. He says, I'm authoritative. So everybody's ears perked up just since, oh, what? Everybody's ears perked up just in and said, but I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, in his inner person, already guilty just by looking, just by thinking. Now, lest you think, if I look at someone, I'm out, right? That's not what he's talking about. But he says, look with a certain thing. This, the, the Greek word for look just means look, okay? And the Greek word for lust just means strong desire, okay? So we have to put it together. If you look with lust... That changes everything. Now you're gazing. You're gazing at them because you want whatever it is you're gazing at. In this context, it's another person. It doesn't have to be a person for you to be sinful and how you desire something. You could desire any wrong thing. You could desire to tell a lie. You could desire to cheat. You could desire to disobey your parents. There's a lot of things you can desire. In this context, it's looking um, with lust. We see a really good example in the Old Testament uh, of David, right? When he was up on the rooftop, when kings are supposed to be at war, but he stayed and he gets up to the rooftop palace and he's looking at his city. Nothing wrong yet. He sees another person on the rooftop. Happens to be Bathsheba. Still nothing wrong yet. And he looked at her with desire in his heart and then he invited her into the castle. And then that, as soon as he switched to, oh, I want you, now you have committed sin. Now he had sinned. He had looked with desire. Today's day 
is crazy. You are influenced with so many things that are coming your way that are just the terrible messages, right? Uh, MacArthur says it this way. He says, our day is one of unbridled indulgence. People propagate, promote, and exploit sexual desires through the most powerful and pervasive media ever known to man. Who has a cell phone in here? It is not wrong to have a cell phone. What does a cell phone have access to? The internet, right? Is the internet a helpful resource? Yes. Yes. But it's also a window into all kinds of terrible stuff. Yes. Yes. Right? You should have protection against those things. My question to you, yes. I can't remember who it was, but someone said that uh, the internet is Satan's playground. It could be. But guess what? (laughs) Satan is the father of lies. Is he, has he been given dominion by God to rule the earth? Yes. yes, the earth is his playground, right? So don't think just the internet, think life, right? And think, what is my heart desire? What am I desiring? That's what Jesus is going right at. In this context, they thought, I have a physical rule. As long as I don't break the physical rule, I'm great. Jesus says, in your heart, though, if you're wanting to break the physical rule in your heart, you're still guilty, You're still guilty. Jesus assesses your heart and says you are guilty. In the context of of lust, it's not just the person that gazes that needs to be guilty. For all of you, as you decide, what am I going to do with my life? Who am I going to be? The context of modesty and clothing comes up in this right here. Arthur Pink says it this way. He says, out of an exhibition of the Sermon on the Mount, where we are, he says, if lustful looking is so grievous a sin, right, that's what we were just talking about, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at are more guilty. So you have to consider, like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I, who am I becoming? What, am I, what, what do I desire? If you desire the wrong thing in your heart, you're just as guilty. Matthew 59 says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanderers. For out of the where? Heart. Out of your inner person is where that comes from. Yes, we'll talk about actions here in a minute, and they do lead to things, but it's your heart that God is assessing. He's not looking at those actions by themselves. He's looking at your heart. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says this really well. It says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows. He knows every intention of our heart. He can assess between them. He already knows everything is laid bare before his eyes. So I have a couple questions when you think about that is that our desires are influenced by what we take in. So you don't have to answer this, but I want you to consider what content are you taking in? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Who are your friends? Proverbs are pretty clear about friends. A companion of fools is going to be brought down, but a person with wise counsels around them is going to be brought up. Who are the people you spend your time with that you allow to influence you? Right? What do you choose to put a blind eye to thinking, wow, that's not going to bother me. Oh, just because I saw that movie that has that content in it that's not great, I'm not going to act like that. Those are seeds you're planting in your heart. They're going to work against you thinking, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not as bad. 
Here's a really crazy one. You're in a room, maybe a church, and you're thinking about, well, I, you know, that person's pretty good. I'm, I'm kind of like them. What did you just switch your standard to? Pardon? Pride. Maybe, yeah, it's based out of pride, but if you're looking at someone else, like I'm going to abuse him, he's looking right at me, and he's your youth pastor. Right? So, I'm looking at Brandon, he's a pretty good dude, right? So um, he's a sinful guy. But if you looked at him and you said, hey, Brandon doesn't break the law. I'm kind of like Brandon. I must be good. Who did you make your standard? Brandon. Mr. Brandon instead of Jesus, right? Instead of perfection. You just switched your standard. It happens all the time. Don't switch your standards. Don't switch your standards. Right? So what you see in today's world is corrosive, right? And it's coming at you faster than you can think about it. It's coming at you through your schools. It's coming at you through your lectures. It's going to be always coming at you. There's never a day it's going to stop coming at you until you die or Jesus comes back. So watch what you take in. You have to ask yourself, where is the state of your heart and what do you desire? What do you find yourself most wanting? Is it friends? Is it a relationship? Is it good grades? Is it a Lego toy? My kids are seven and younger. That's a big thing in our house. Yes? Probably a Lego toy. It's a really old line of like little gold figures that are really special that I kind of am wanting. Yeah, the kind of am wanting from your design. See, look at, look at what humans do. Thank you for saying that. I'm kind of wanting that. Thank you for jumping out there. It's just we always spin it. We'll get to the word thing later. Wait, humans are funny creatures. They're sinful. Sometimes it's funny. Um, but you got to ask yourself, what's the flip side? And it's not, by, by no means is it wrong to have a desire for a Lego. It's not. What kind of a desire is it? That's really important. Are you willing to sin to get it? Now you've sinned. That's really a good standard. Uh, you have to ask yourself, are my desires for God and his will and his righteousness, or are they for something else? Because it's for yourself, and that's a simple desire. And once you recognize where I'm at in this, Jesus continues in this passage, verses 29 to 32, and he, and he says, well, what do you do about it? What should you do about it? How should you think about what you're, what you're doing? And he immediately instructs us, and he says, if your right eye makes you stumble because you desire it, you see it, then tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you for the same reason. Right? To be clear, he is not saying pluck a physical part of yourself off and throw it away. I know. <laughs> because why? Where are we evaluated? In our heart, in our inner person. If you take off your hand and throw it from you, is your inner person still sinful? Yes, he's not talking about chopping off pieces of your body or plucking out parts of your body. He's saying, be extreme. That's what he's saying. Be drastic. Think about it. If your phone causes you to sin, throw your phone away. I'm not, I'm not kidding. If money causes you to sin, let someone else run your finances. Right? If your music causes you to sin and desire things, stop listening to that music. Just cut it out. Don't do it. Because why would you? Why would you? Right? If it's a magazine subscription that you get and they say, hey, there's some stuff in there that's not good, and I get it, and throw it away. That's what he's saying. Be drastic. The commentator Hendrickson says, take drastic action in getting rid of whatever in the natural course of events tempts you into sin. MacArthur says it this way. He says, if we do not consciously and purposefully, those are important, consciously and purposefully control what's around us, where we go, what we do, what we watch and read, the company we keep and the conversations we have, then those things control us. Unfettered influence. They control you. They'll, before you even see it, and what you can't control, you should discard without hesitation. 
If you find yourself thinking, man, that, that's me, I, all kinds of stuff's happening to me, then, then Jesus says very, very clearly in all the scripture, he says, then recognize that occurrence, repent, confess it to the Lord as sinful, and repent of it. And then consider the weight of the moment. Is it better for you to have whatever that thing is, whatever your heart desires, it's sinful. Is it better for you to have it and be then unrepentant and have a broken relationship with God? If you're not a believer, that means then you're a sinner and that sinner, you're all sinners. If you're not a believer, then you're not redeemed and you're going to hell. That's what he says in his word. Is it better to have that as your outcome and get the small thing that you wanted? Consider the weightiness of this moment. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then he's going to assess your heart and he's going to find it guilty. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, he clears this up for all of us. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, which would be any sinner, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, which means you desire things you don't have, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. And here's the beautiful message. But you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. If that's you... If you have recognized your sin, you've repented. I agree with God that my sin is wrong. It offends him. And you placed all of your faith in Jesus as Lord. Then this is you. You're redeemed. You are justified in his name. He sees you in Jesus' perfect righteousness. You need not fear. You should still repent and confess sin, but you need not fear. If that's not you, though, he finds you guilty. And you should repent and believe. This opens up a door. As a believer, then... Okay, I should, dra- I should be drastic in what I do. I should be careful about what I allow, relationships, conversations, friends, things, whatever it is that might tempt me to sin. So what we're talking about is self-control. How do you control yourself, right? What do you use? What do you do? God's word gives us the answer, and I've just picked a couple favorites as we're talking about the heart. So that means we have to influence the heart, right? You know some of these verses, I'm sure, but these are some of my favorites that help me Psalm 119, 9 to 11 describes exactly what you should do to have self-control and control your heart desires. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's a good question. By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Where's the direction of the psalmist's heart? Seeking the Lord. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. It's hiding God's word in your heart. And not just that, it's then seeking after God, dwelling on that, thinking about that, filling your mind with it. You can't think deeply about two things at once. It's impossible. Dwell on the Lord, and you'll dwell on the Lord. Stop dwelling on the Lord, and all that content and influence is just going to start rooting itself in your brain. You're going to start thinking about it. Dwell on the Lord. You think, well, what should I dwell in? Paul answers that, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So if you're looking for a list, like, man, that's a lot. There's not a lot out there that I can. Wrong. We just went through it. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. You can't run out. All of God's word is full of it. It's full of all of those things. 
but be serious about it. No shadow boxing. No, hey, I memorized these verses. I've got them locked in. I can quiz with the best of you. You think about the game at the beginning, which the games are fun, not calling out the games, but we memorize stuff. And we feel like, look, I've got all this stuff memorized. That doesn't mean anything. Dwell on it. Rehearse it in your mind. Meditate on it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. This is how he wanted to act to please the Lord. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Live your life in such a way that you can be righteous. You can follow Christ. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. That's pretty extreme. I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that why? After I have preached to others, he's talking about the gospel, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul puts much effort, much effort on the idea of fighting and disciplining his body to be righteous, to follow the Lord, to obey, and to dwell on those things. Consider your level of self-control. If you've never considered it, that's a good answer to, I don't have a lot of self-control. Consider your level of self-control. What do you do? How do you control what's going on in your brain? Right? What are your habits on Bible intake? Do you read it every day? Do you come back to it and read it again? Do you think about it throughout the day? I mean, I get it. These are high standards. But God's standard is perfect. Right? So we should pursue that standard. Watch the desires of your heart. God is. Watch your actions. He is. That's our first test. And you guys thought tests were over because of summer. That's funny. Um, no, but we have two more to go through, right? The second test is our actions. Okay, this is verses 31 to 32 of chapter 5, if you're looking in your Bibles. And it says, it was said, again, referring to what they knew, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, so what are we talking about here? What they had turned this in, it comes from Deuteronomy 24, chapter, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And this is where Moses gives this, these rules about, um, about divorce. He says, to get it right, we have to go there. If you want to go to Deuteronomy, your Bibles, it's way back at the beginning, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Do you guys catch all that? No. It's like reading a law textbook, right? Okay. So if someone divorces someone and then they go... I'm going to clear it up. I promise. I promise. you got to think about the audience that Jesus was talking to, right? That's complex. What's going on there? They just turned it into, like, oh, if I just hand you a certificate because I'm displeased with you, I'm good to go. You go away, I get to do whatever I want. It literally, they had examples of, you didn't cook a meal the way I wanted. You embarrassed me in public. You didn't do what you should have done. I thought you caused some infraction. It may not even be true. That's what they were doing. It's ridiculous. You should be like, oh, that's terrible, because it is. But there's a bigger thing that's terrible. They were breaking the union of marriage. Who made marriage? God, God did, right? In Genesis, he made marriage. Chapter 2, he made marriage, right? 
Just yeah. here's a really tough question. What's the purpose that God had behind marriage? I know. Who knows this? Abby? Uh, to Christ Ephesians 5, to show Christ's letter to the church. Thank you very much. That was awesome, right? To mirror Christ's relationship to the church, right? So we're the church. Jesus is perfect. We have a relationship. If we are in Christ, right, then we have a bonded relationship. Does God ever break that relationship? No. How scary would that be? You know, um, he doesn't. He's forgiven us. That rest, that the relationship is full of restoration and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that's what the marriage relationship should be full of too. Grace, mercy, restoration, and forgiveness. The Israelites of the day had turned that command into a terrible, terrible thing. Um, they had made it all about themselves. And they had made this process that when we read it, we're like, hold on a second, what's going on here? Why would Moses even say this? Well, the cool thing is, is that some Pharisees asked us that question later on in Matthew. You're going to get there, but we're going to go there tonight. Go to Matthew, I think it's chapter 23. Go to Matthew, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. Everybody go there. Matthew 19, verse 3. If you don't have one, just wait till the page turning stops. I'll read it in a second. 19, verse 3. And everybody look at verse 3. If someone has it before I find it, just put your hand up. You can read it. Okay. Uh, yes. 19 verse 3. 19 verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful, lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay, so that's the question, right? Isn't that what we are just talking about? Yeah. Moses has this process. The Pharisees go, hey, we want to know because... If they're asking the question, that's what they had been doing. You see that? Jesus is an authoritative teacher. The whole culture is like, oh, we've been divorcing people for any reason. Uh, I'm going to get you in trouble with the people. So I'm going to ask you this hard question, right? That's what just happened. Jesus answers it. Jump down to verse 7. What does verse 7 say? Go ahead. They said to him, why then did Moses come in to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Yeah, so... Look how they interpreted Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to back up a second, then we'll talk about Jesus' answer. Look how they interpreted that big passage. It seemed really hard to actually issue the certificate. It did not seem easy. And they said, why did Moses command us to write a certificate and send her away? If you go back to Deuteronomy 24 and you read that really carefully, it is not a command to do it. It is a rule they must follow if they found some indecency. And it's talking about the same rule that God's going to apply is a sexual indecency, something like that. That's what it was. They had changed it. Why? You got to ask yourself, why would someone change God's word? Why would they get it wrong? Why would they twist it? Yes. Personal gain. For personal desires to be fulfilled. He said personal gain. I said personal desires to be fulfilled. That's why they did it. But Jesus... He nails them even closer to the what reality is. If you look at seven, they wanted it to be a command. They wanted it to be something that, hey, I'm just doing what God said to do here. And they were wrong. Moses allowed this certificate process because it was really complex and it documented who's doing this. It wrote it down. Just like if you're in school and you do something wrong and it goes in like a file, the principal gets it like, whoa, that's on record. Right? Okay, people know. Same thing as he had the certificate. People are going to know. And what does it do? It says that you divorced them for this reason. And then what it does is it documents and it puts them on record. If it wasn't the right reason, then you are multiplying adultery. 
Because if it was not the reason that Moses specified that Jesus is going to confirm, which is unchastity in marriage, right? Someone breaking that relationship. Um, if it's not that, then you sent her away. She remarries because in first century Israel, how did people make their money? Uh, I guess they could sell people. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't like today where it's like, I work on my computer all day and make money because I work at a job and sit in my room. No, they farmed, they worked. And in that culture, the women raised the children and they grew up, they didn't have an income source. So they're going to go get married again. That just caused adultery. And then they send her away and marry someone else. That just caused adultery. It's this infinitely expanding adulterous relationship. That's what's happening. It's terrible. And that's why they had to write a certificate because then people wouldn't do it. Like, ooh, don't put me on record for doing that. Oh, no. So, but Jesus clears it up. That's why this, That's why Moses had the certificate, but Jesus clears it up in verses 32. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, single or not, commits adultery, right? So divorce is breaking up the marriage. That's what it is. God designed marriage. If you're still in Matthew 19 and you look at chapter 19, verse 6, you will see that God's design is what, what God has joined together. Let no man separate. Divorce breaks what God wants. Um, there's only one reason, and that is unchastity. Paul adds, if you wanted to count them, a second reason is if you have an unbelieving spouse, you're, you're married, you both are probably unbelievers when you got married, one of you gets saved, and one wants to, the unbelieving one wants to leave, Paul says, let him leave. Those are the only two reasons. Um, and they're not commands either. They're allowances. God says, I hate divorce. What I have joined together, let no person separate. So the real test is, why would someone divorce them? You guys already answered that. Because their heart went way wrong. Their personal desires went way wrong. They wanted what they wanted, and they didn't want God's righteousness, and so they chose to sin. Your actions show your heart. We have one more test. Yeah. I know, right? We love these tests. Um, it's your words. If you look at verses 33 to 37, you'll see the third test in Matthew chapter 5. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, and you got us, if you went astray, or you, actually you went where I told you to go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, it says... Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, there's our thing, this is what they thought, you shall not make false vows, but you shall, uh, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Okay, so what did they heard? Don't make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Okay, that seems reasonable. Why? Because that's coming out of Leviticus 19.12, Numbers 30. It's a clear command of Scripture. I'll just read Numbers 30, verse 2 for you. It says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. He should fulfill what he said he was going to do. But they had twisted it. They took the emphasis on those commands and they said, only if you said to the Lord. That's the only time I actually have to obey what I said I would do. That's the only time I'm obligated. So if you said, by my name, my name, it sounds like, oh, man, he's said an oath. It's important. Okay, I guess he's probably going to keep his word. In their culture, totally don't have to do it. They had created this intricate system of deceit that they loved. Why would you love an intricate system of deceit? Yes, Ian. If you're gambling, you don't have to pay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
That's right. What else, Fox? Because you're deceitful. Because you're deceitful. You know, just like, oh, I get to run around and do exactly what I want and I'm not held accountable to it? That's terrific. That's sin. They had full sway into anything they wanted to do because they would say, I promise. But if they didn't say to the Lord, I'm good to go. I don't have to do it. That's what they were doing. That is not what God's word says at all. They had totally twisted it. And they applied it to himself. So Jesus comes in behind them and says, hey, let me give you a clearer picture. Um, and this is an example. In Matthew 23, he brings details to this. He says, woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Jesus' response, you fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? It's like, if you make an oath, keep it. That's what he's saying. He says, rather, if you want to look at verse 34, he says, this is the truth, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, which they were doing, but hey, that's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, which they were doing, but that's the city of the great king, or by whether or not you can change one of your hairs to be white or black. You don't control that. God does. He was telling them that of all these things that you're not saying in the Lord's name, and you're like, oh, I'm good to go. It's still God's. God owns everything. You're still swearing by the Lord. The point of it is keep your commitments. Keep your oaths. Jesus says, make no oath at all. He is not saying that oaths are bad. God makes oaths. You can look at Hebrews chapter 6. You can look at all the times the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Every time he says, hey, if you do this, I will. He's making, he's swearing them. He's promising them. Um, it's not about oaths. It's about keeping them. Okay? Um, Jesus says right at the end, verse 37, he says, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. God loves truthfulness. That's what he loves. So having a whole system of deceitfulness, opposite of what God loves. God hates that. If you act like that, if you're thinking in your, in your heart, that like, I kind of do some of that stuff, because here comes the hard part, right? If God loves truthfulness, I have to go here. What is a white lie? What is a white lie? Um, okay, a little white lie. I'm going off of the definition of people. A small lie that supposedly has no effect. Yeah, like it's just a little thing. It's not going to hurt anybody. But what is it? It's a lie. It's not existent. Yeah, it's not true, right? There's not like, oh, that's an okay one. You're twisting what God says. You're doing the same thing they were doing. What about hiding the truth? It's still lying, but we think that. No, like, oh, I didn't do, I didn't tell you. But I, I told you some of the right stuff. We do that, right? Your parents ask you, your parents went away for the afternoon and said, hey, just clean your stuff, get your homework done, do your things. Okay. And then you can play. Yeah. And they leave. And then you spend all your time playing. You look at the clock, oh, they're going to be home. And you rush out and say, hey, how'd this afternoon go? It was good. Is that the truth? Nope. No. No. It's the truth is, well, I disobeyed you because I did what I wanted first, and then I knew you were coming back, and I feared you would get angry at me, so then I did it all. That's the truth. That's the truth. God loves truthfulness. Think about the relationships with your parents, with your teachers, with your friends. Someone asks you, hey, you want to go see this movie? And you know it's totally wrong. And so you go, ah, no, I'm busy. Are you busy? No, you just weren't brave enough to say no because God says this in my life. I wasn't following what God says to do. So you lied to your friend. Why? Well, because I didn't. I can't go see a bad thing. I'm just a... No, you're a liar. 
That's, I, this hurts my heart because I'm like, oh my goodness, how my, my kids ask me questions that are hard and I don't want to answer because, oh my God, I have to own that. It's better to say, kid, that's a hard question. I don't want to answer it than to lie or answer it. Yes, Fox. What about when the midwife lied to Pharaoh to the children? Oh, good, right? So, and you can, not, you can pick the midwife. You can pick Abraham as he lied to people. You can pick Isaac as he lied to the people around him about their wives being their sisters or not their sisters. You can pick Rahab, right? You can pick all of these people in Scripture that told a lie. The real question is, did they have to tell a lie for God's will to be accomplished? No. They did not. Did they? And did they record it? And did God work through their sin? Yes. How awesome is our God that he can do that? We cannot ruin his plan. Isn't that awesome? All he asks is to know his son, Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, believe in him with all your heart as Lord, and follow after him as best as you can. Repenting and confessing, confessing and repenting along the way and keeping a restored relationship with him. That's what he asks. Seek first my righteousness and my kingdom. Everything else I will provide for you. We don't have to fear that if I don't lie right now, then the wrong thing's going to happen and I'm going to mess it all up. You can't mess it up. God's infinite, and we are finite. I want you to think about this. Think about your words. Think about what you say. Think about what happens when your parents ask you those hard questions, and you know, hey, did you read your Bible today? Ah!" Just own it. Be truthful. If you didn't, own it. You've all been there. I'm sure you've been caught, and then they said, hey, your parents tell you, like, just tell us the truth. It'll be much worse for you if you get caught in a lie than if you told us the truth. It doesn't mean you won't be in trouble. Don't tell them, Drew said it. Sure, I don't have to, if I tell you the truth. That's not what I said. Um, it'll just be less trouble, potentially. Depends on what you do. All right. Um, yes, that could, as you speak the truth, could it make some people uncomfortable? It could. But God says, I love the truth. So let me summarize for us these three tests. MacArthur says, God is a holy God. His kingdom is a holy kingdom, and the people of his kingdom are to be a holy people. His righteousness is to be their righteousness, and anything less than his righteousness, including anything less than absolute truth, is unacceptable to him because it is of evil. God has revealed our hearts tonight in the actions we do, in the words that we say, and the actual internal desires of our heart. So if you find yourself thinking, I have a heart that God would test and find guilty, then listen to, uh, listen, li- listen to what God says. He says, the grace, this is Titus 2, he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He has. He offers salvation to you through his son, Jesus Christ, who paid for all of our sins and satisfied them completely to where you can be justified by his blood if you only repent and believe in him as Lord. And then he follows that up, so what are you supposed to do? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what we're supposed to do. Our theme has been your desires, actions, and words all reflect the true nature of your heart, and your heart is what God evaluates for the state of your eternal soul. Examine your heart desires, examine your words, examine your actions. Are they pleasing to the Lord? If they are, praise the Lord. If they're not, confess and repent and follow after him in grace. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you are awesome. And we praise your name for being holy. We praise you for being gracious. We praise you for being merciful. We praise you for being infinite. Lord, we praise you 
forgiving us your son Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we praise you for giving us your instruction of how we can live before you in a way that pleases you, in a way that um, honors you, in a way that shows the rest of the world how great you are. Lord, I pray for those in here that don't know you, that you would work in their hearts, cause them to see their sin as the offense to you that it is, and cause them to repent. Bring them into your family through the saving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. And for those that are believers in here, help us to look at our lives the way you look at them. Help us to test all of our desires, words and thoughts and actions and deeds and make them pleasing to you. Help us to control ourselves through the strength of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.